Luke chapter 24, we read a familiar story to you, I'm certain. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One's name is Clopas, we don't know the name of the other. But these men are conversing about what has transpired in Jerusalem, specifically the crucifixion. And they are hearing rumors of resurrection, and they're talking about these things while they're on the road outside of the city, headed away from Jerusalem, actually. And Jesus appears to them. Uh, They don't know it's Jesus. The text says that he kept them from actually discerning who he was, and so they think him to be a stranger in the area. And our Lord is walking with them along this road. And look at verse 17 of Luke 24. We're told, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed at us. Uh, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you like to have known what passage in Moses and the prophets the Lord referenced as he interpreted to them the scriptures of the things about himself? I'd love to have been in that conversation when he just opened the Old Testament and said, here, all these things had to happen, just like it was said. Well, I think, undoubtedly, the Lord must have spent some time in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, don't you? In fact, that's where I want you to turn tonight, to Isaiah 53. And I want to remind us, we're actually going to look at Isaiah 52 tonight. I want to remind us that 
these verses speak of Jesus Christ 700 years before he ever walked the earth. This is prophecy. And remember that those two disciples on the road were saying, we had thought that this was the Christ that was going to come and redeem Israel. And Jesus' response to them was foolish and and slow to believe all the things that the prophets have told you. Didn't you know that the Christ must come and suffer and die? And Jesus was saying to them, it was plain to you, God had spoken of these things in his word. And indeed, the Jews were anticipating a Messiah to come and to reign in glory. And during the day in which Jesus lived, they were expecting this anointed one from God to be a conqueror and a deliverer. And they had followed his line through the Old Testament. He would be Born of a woman, Genesis 3. He would be a human being. He would be of the line of Abraham in Genesis 12. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of David and the kings that came from David. And they were looking for this one who would come. And Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies in his coming. But what was surprising to them is that he came without all the pomp and circumstance of a great king. In fact, we read in John's gospel in the first chapter that someone comes to Nathanael and says that we have found the Christ. It's Jesus. And you remember Nathanael's response. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why? Because Nazareth was a, a no place. Insignificant. Rough character. Can any good thing come out of there? I mean, you're telling me this is the Christ? We're looking for someone that's going to come with pomp and circumstance and deliver us from our captors, these Romans. They were shocked. But I suggest to you that the Jewish people should have known. They should have known that Jesus would come humbly and give himself in sacrifice. And I think that when Jesus is explaining this to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he must have looked at this passage in, in Isaiah 52 and 53 because this passage in particular is quoted seven times in our New Testament and it's alluded to another 34 times. So as you just read through your New Testament, you come across all kinds of allusion and quotation back to this very passage that tells us this was talking about Jesus 700 years before he ever lived. So what is this passage? Well, it's a song. The song begins in verse verse 13 of chapter 52. And it's a song that has three stanzas. We sang some songs tonight. We sang hymns, and there's a stanza and a refrain. This is just all stanzas, and there's five of them. And each of them are three verses. Stanza one is chapter 52, 13 to 15. Stanza two is chapter 53, 1 to 3. Stanza three is verses 4 through 6. Stanza four is verses 7 through 9. Stanza five is 10 through 12. Very simply laid out, there are... Five stanzas. But these stanzas kind of mirror each other. 
The first stanza, beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13, talks about uh, exaltation. The end of verse 13 talks about the servant being exalted. And if you look at chapter 53 and verse 12, the last stanza talks about dividing the portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's talking again about this servant in the end who's a conqueror, and he has this spoil to divide, as it were. Here again is this idea of exaltation. Stanzas 2 and 4, that's chapter 53, 1 to 3, and chapter 53, 7 to 9, they speak of the servant's rejection. And those two stanzas talk about how he had no form and the people saw him and they thought something different about him and they rejected him and turned away from him. And at the very center of this song is that middle stanza, right? If there are five, there's first and last, there's the next two, and then there's one right in the middle. And that stanza is... Chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, and that's the heart of the passage, and it talks about the substitution of the Savior. When he died, he didn't die for his own sin. He died for our sin. And this is how this servant song is laid out. It's the fourth of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And whenever we gather... On the Lord's Day, to observe the Lord's table together this year, Lord willing, I want to look at each one of these stanzas. And we'll go through them that we can understand what is being prophesied concerning the Lord and His work. Tonight, I want us to examine the first stanza in Isaiah 52. Let's just read it, beginning in verse 13. This is God speaking. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This first stanza really speaks of shock. Look at the terminology. Verse 13, behold. Verse 14, many were astonished. Verse 15, your version probably reads, he shall sprinkle many, but that can be translated, he will startle many. Again, the idea of startling or astonishment. And In the middle of verse 15, kings will shut their mouths, kind of in the idea of their own astonishment at this servant. There's shock here. So tonight, I want us to look at the shocking servant of the Lord. The shocking servant of the Lord. I want us first of all to note the shock at the servant's exaltation. Look at verse 13. Behold, there's the idea that kind of gathers people's attention, right? If I'm up here and I tell you, behold, or, or it's kind of like I'm saying, look, look here. See what's going on here. And that's the idea of gathering attention here. It's God himself. He's the speaker according to verse 6 of chapter 52. And he says, behold, there's something I want you to see. 
What does he want perceived or paid attention to? He says in verse 13, it is my servant. What is a servant? Servant is simply somebody that has bowed their will to the will of another. They have a master. Therefore, that servant says, I am here to do the bidding of my master. And what's being put forth here is that here is one whose will was entirely given over to do the bidding of Jehovah or Yahweh sometimes as it's pronounced in the Old Testament, the one true God. And the sense here by stating it as my servant or God is saying this is my true servant is that this is one true Israelite who will genuinely do my will. This one is completely given over to accomplishing my perfect will. This is my servant, my choice servant. There's none other like him. And we know this is true from Jesus' earthly life. This morning we noted in the incarnation of Jesus that he had a human will and took that to himself. And yet that will was always perfectly submissive to his father. Jesus said things like this in his earthly life. In John 4 and verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, what is food? Food is sustenance. It's what keeps us going. It's what gives us energy. And and you think, this is my nourishment. This is really what, what helps me to live. And Jesus said, what is my nourishment but that I am surrendered to the will of my Father, that I do all that he's given me to do. Jesus said, that's even more important to me than than physical sustenance. In John 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so here's the picture painted 700 years before Jesus ever made those statements that this would be his disposition. He would be the servant of the Lord, completely submissive to the will of the Father. And in doing so, he would do this. Look again at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act how? Wisely. What does it mean to act wisely? Literally, we could say this, it's using the best means to accomplish the best ends. In this regard, it's speaking of Jesus, this servant in particular, he will know and do the right things in order to accomplish the best purposes of the Father. He knows exactly the right things to do in the right way to do them in order to accomplish the perfect will of God. He is full of wisdom, Isaiah 11 will say, speaking of this servant. And when you think about this, wisdom consists largely in determining desirable ends through practical means. This is what Jesus would do while on earth. The practical means to accomplish the Father's ultimate will But in the wisdom of God, that meant that Jesus would actually have to practice a great deal of self-denial. 
in that although he could have saved himself from death, he didn't. Why? Because he was acting wisely. Those prescribed means that would bring the best end, salvation for all. Had Jesus chosen to save himself, he could save nobody. But the servant of the Lord submitted himself at deep self-denial to the pain of the cross that you and I could be saved and forgiven of our sin. This is the wise servant of the Lord, is it not? And because the servant would do this, look at him. This is my servant. He acts wisely. Here's the result, the rest of verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Because he does my will and submits to that and does so wisely, he will have this exalted and high position. Now, here's what's very interesting. When Isaiah talks about being high and lifted up, he uses those words three other times in the book of Isaiah. And every time he uses those words, he's always talking about God, the Holy One of Israel. You probably know this passage, Isaiah 6. It says, um, uh, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah has this vision of God, and he says, Here's what's God's position, high and lifted up. That's God's position alone. He also speaks of God in the 33rd chapter of Isaiah, and he speaks of God as being high and lifted up. Now look at Isaiah 57. Turn over just a few pages. And look at verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. But notice it speaks of God here as well as being high and lifted up. He's the holy one. There's none like him. So do you find it odd that when Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, he speaks of this servant who acts wisely for the one true God, that he himself will be high and lifted up, that Isaiah is attributing to him that same position of deity? Because that's exactly what he's doing. And that means, who was Jesus? Jesus was God in the flesh. He too is high and lifted up. And it says, shall be exalted. I don't have time to take you there, but we could read Acts chapter 2, and it's talking about after Jesus accomplishes the will of the Father, we're told that God raised him from the dead, and Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost says, right now he is exalted at the right hand of God. High and lifted up, exalted. 
And this is the shock that Isaiah is recording in this servant song. He says there's shock at a servant who deals wisely, but the servant is made king. Shocking. The servant is the king. And demonstrates so precisely because of how he served, laying his entire life down. Shocking, isn't it? This is shock at the servant's exaltation. But there's also shock at this servant's humiliation. Look at verse 14. It says, as many were astonished at you. And the you is a reference to the servant of verse 13. He says, there were many people that were astonished. They were startled or shocked at you. Why would they be shocked at this servant? Well, look at what it says in verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance or human recognition and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Shocking that this servant of the Lord who had become exalted as king, yet when you look at him, you can barely recognize him as a human being. His form was so marred. What is this talking about? It's astonishment at his physical appearance. Now, this is not a reference to the fact that somehow Jesus was unattractive as a human being. It's actually a reference to the fact that what Jesus endured as the servant of the Lord, his wise actions, as it were, led to his disfigurement. Now, when we think of the brutal beating that Jesus took while here on earth, we typically think of two things that primarily happened to him. The crown of thorns, right, as it was placed upon his brow. And we think of his crucifixion on Calvary and the piercing of his hands and feet. But do you realize that the Gospels record for us that there were six other beatings that Jesus took In fact, when you read the Gospels, you kind of gloss over these things and and you just kind of read them almost, you know, just passing over them. But if you pause to think about it, you've got to think of the agony that Jesus suffered. Let me show you a few of them. Look at John 18. What kind of agony did Jesus endure? Well, we know that there was emotional agony. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he prays and sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. There's an agony of being betrayed by a close acquaintance, a close friend, Judas, and he's betrayed by him. And all of this takes place in the same night. At midnight, he's betrayed. Now, Jesus endures a trial. Look at John 18 and look at verse 12. It's after the betrayal. It says, verse 12, so a band of soldiers and, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, just stop right there. Try to picture that scene of band of soldiers taking Jesus under arrest and binding him. Do you think that was gentle? 
Was it hold out your hands so I can place the ropes on you and then let's just kind of lead them away? I don't think that was gentle at all. Maybe it was accompanied by some blows. Nevertheless, look down at verse 19 at this first religious trial. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly the word to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I've said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with the hand. Here again is another kind of silent beating. Just a right with the back of the hand, certainly leaving a mark. That was the first of his religious trials. We have a second religious trial. Look at Matthew 26. What I'm reading to you are not the same events. They are different successive events. So by this time, the Lord has not slept all night. He has been bound and handled roughly. He has been struck with the hand before Caiaphas. And now Matthew 26, look at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. That's what we had read of. But now look down at verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Again, another beating that the Lord took, this time at the hands of priests. But it didn't end there. Look across the page at Matthew 27. Look at verse 1. When morning came. Okay, this had all happened under the fall of darkness. And now when morning came, chapter 27 and verse 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Again, I can't imagine that was gentle. Perhaps dragging him. This is now morning, it's 6 a.m., and yet there's another trial that he will face. Look at Luke's gospel, Luke 23. Jesus is taken from Caiaphas, he's taken to Pilate now. Oh, this is before Herod. Luke 23, look at verse 5. But when they, were, when they 
But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. He'd long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, they'd been at enmity with one another. But here's another sense where they're treating the Lord with contempt and mocking him. Again, I can't imagine that that was something gentle. Look at verse 16 of Luke 23. After he goes back to Pilate, Pilate interviews him again and says, I will therefore punish him and release him. And this was the idea of a gentle punishment. It was meant, it was the least of the three extreme kinds of punishment, but it was meant to elicit pity from the people so that they will want to release the prisoner. And Pilate does this, but it doesn't work. The people want blood. So finally we read in Mark chapter 15 and verse 19 that they eventually flog the Lord. And what that looked like was they would have stripped his back and tied him to a post and beat him. Several soldiers would have done so with a lash of leather that had pieces of bone and stone in it. And each lash would have ripped flesh from his body. Now, such beatings would have taken its toll upon Jesus before he ever got to the cross. That's probably why they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross, because physically he just couldn't do it. Finally, Jesus is crucified about 9 a.m., but there has been 10 hours of torture of this man. That's why back in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah looks down the portal of time and he's seeing this and it's being revealed to him and he says, my servant, people will be shocked at his humiliation. What a beating this man is taking. Literally, it would be like his form is beyond that of the children of mankind, almost unrecognizable. And it's shock at the humiliation of this servant to endure such harshness and pain. But why did he do that? Well, he did it for me. And he did it for you. He took the penalty of our sin in his own body. He accomplished God's will by providing a sacrifice for us. There is shock at the servant's humiliation in his form. But finally, I want us to look at the shock of the servant's coronation. Go back to Isaiah 52. Look at 
We've seen verse 13, shock at his exaltation. This servant doing the will of God is exalted to the highest position. He himself, deity. There's shock in his humiliation, verse 14, astonished at his appearance and and what he would endure. And then notice verse 15, where your version likely reads, as mine does, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In my Bible, next to the word sprinkle, there's a little number two that points me to the margin. And there's another translation for that word sprinkle. Do you see it there? What's the word? Startle. Most modern translations, including the King James, say sprinkle. I only found startle actually in the text as I looked briefly this afternoon in the New Living Translation And the New English translation actually puts startle in the text. So what's going on here? Is this servant going to sprinkle many nations or startle many nations? The idea of sprinkling, the reason that that word is used is because this term is used in the book of Leviticus. And it talks about a priest that would take blood and sprinkle it on the altar. However, it's used in a different stem as we call in the Hebrew language doesn't occur in this stem in Leviticus. And so many have come to the text and said this. What it's talking about is Jesus, by his being disfigured and marred, would actually serve like a priest and provide forgiveness for many nations. He would like sprinkle the nations to cleanse them. And that's certainly true. That's what Jesus did. But I don't think that's the best understanding of the text. In fact, the root word in Hebrew for sprinkle and startle is what we call a homonym. All right, let me take you back to English 101. Aren't you glad? What is a homonym? It's two words that sound the same but mean different things. And sometimes those words even are spelled the same. Let me give you an example. You tonight are sitting in a row. But you can also row, row, row your boat. Right? You've got the same word, spelled even the same way. But it has two different meanings. And you would know that by context. What you have here is a homononic, homononic, something like that stem in Hebrew. And that word can be sprinkle or it can be startle. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, went with startle. I think that's probably the better understanding. Here's why. Just look at the context. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you. In parentheses, what's this astonishment? His appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form among the children of mankind. So shall he startle many nations. As many were shocked at you and your appearance, so you're going to come and shock the nations. In fact, when you do that and you startle these nations... 
Kings are going to shut their mouth. They're going to be so shocked, gasping. (gasps) I believe that's the best sense of understanding of this text because I believe what verse 15 is actually referring to, if you have the first coming of Jesus in verse 14 and his being beaten and bruised for our affliction, in verse 15, you have his second coming. That having now suffered wisely and perfectly as the servant of the Lord to a place where he was disfigured almost beyond recognition, there's coming a day when he will return. And when he does, the nations will be shocked. And haven't we read that in Revelation 19? Coming on the clouds of heaven. As it were arrayed in white with his army and all the nations gathered against the Lord's people. And suddenly, here he comes. And the nations are startled. And all of those kings that dare rule in his place, they will be humbled and their mouths will be stopped. This is shocking. It's shock at the coronation of this servant. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming again to show it. This is the servant of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 700 years before he ever walked this earth, the prophet Isaiah, through the words of God in his prophecy, demonstrates shock at his exaltation. This servant acting wisely, leading to his exaltation to the very place that God holds. Their shock at his humiliation. How could that one endure such pain and grief? And yet that was the will of God for the servant. And there's coming a day of shock when all the nations will know that this servant is indeed the king of kings. And when he comes again, he will demonstrate that and they will be startled. And this is the Savior that we remember tonight at this table. When we gather tonight and we gather these elements and we partake of them, we are demonstrating, I believe That Jesus did this for me. His body was broken like this bread is crushed between my teeth. His blood was spilt and I take it to myself. I believe that this is what saves me. Only what he has done for me. Because he is the true servant of the Lord. Let's remember this as we observe the table together tonight.